Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 4. In this chapter, we hear about the fifth of Zechariah's eight nighttime visions. Since we're passing the halfway point in these visions, it might be helpful to just zoom out for a second and look at the set as a whole. As I mentioned, there are eight of these nighttime visions. They all came to Zechariah on the same night. They're not eight completely different, unrelated visions. They tell a unified story that addresses the questions, concerns, and traumas of the covenant community at this particular moment in its history. But that's not to say that the visions are all time-bound to the situation and challenges of the 6th century BC. They address that situation, but they bring hope and encouragement and resolve to the people by stretching out their own sense of the timeline. Sometimes the most encouraging thing in a particular situation is not a clue about how to solve your immediate problem. Sometimes it's just a glimpse of the distant future that reassures you that things indeed will get better. There is going to be hope and joy and happiness and beauty and victory down the road. Knowing that, being assured of that, helps you put your head down and plow through whatever challenges you are facing at street level. That's what's going on here. So we've got these eight visions. The first one was about horses. That was God saying, I see, I'm not asleep here, I'm receiving reports, I know what's going on. Second one was about the horns. That was God reassuring the people that he has plans for punishing and paying back every global power that has oppressed and terrorized the people of God. The third vision was the one with the measuring line. That was God telling the people that he has big plans for them, bigger than their dreams and ambitions for themselves. He was working on a totally different scale than they were. They were thinking local. He was thinking global. They were thinking about buildings and land. He was thinking about nations, tribes, and people groups. They weren't wrong for focusing on those small things, but God wanted them to understand that out of those small things would grow something bigger and, and better than they could ever imagine. God was going to grow something truly cosmic, and he was going to take personal responsibility for their success and safety. The fourth vision, which took up all of chapter 3, was about the forgiveness and restoration of Joshua the high priest. The restoration of the ministry of the covenant community pointed forward to the coming branch and the special stone, two symbols that anticipate Messiah. Now, here in chapter 4, we have the fifth night vision featuring a lampstand. We'll get back to that in just a minute. Then in chapter 5, we have the sixth night vision featuring a flying scroll, which represents the curse of God going to and fro to punish sin and wickedness. We also have the seventh night vision, which depicts a woman in a basket, representing idolatry. Then in chapter 6, we have the vision of the chariots, which represents God's active providential interaction in the affairs of history. And so you see that the eight visions tell a unified story. In vision one, we're told that God sees what is going on. And then in vision eight, we are told that God is moving out actively in history to address what is going on. So vision one and eight are bookends. 
And then inside the visions, those bookends, uh, each of the visions are given in couplets. So vision two and three go together. Vision four and five go together. Visions six and seven go together. All right, that was the zoomed out perspective. And I think that hopefully that's helpful. Now let's zoom back in on this fifth vision about the lampstand. Now remember, I just said that vision five is part of a couplet with vision four. Vision four was about Joshua and the restoration of the ministry of the covenant community. So we expect vision five to carry on that theme or to relate to that theme in some way. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. Let's just pause here to make note of the strange mode of revelation represented by these visions. These are not dreams per se, because the angel wakes Zechariah up in order to ensure that he's seeing what he's supposed to be seeing and to discuss the correct meaning and interpretation. So dream is not the right word, but it is happening at night and Zechariah seems to be at least in and out of sleep. So that's what scholars mean when they refer to these as night visions. They are revelations that take place in that strange borderland between sleep and awake. But they are not shrouded in impenetrable fog like most of our dreams would be. Rather, the angel makes sure that the imagery and meaning is seen, retained, and understood. We observe him doing that very thing in verse 2. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The basic idea here is fairly obvious, though there is, of course, some discussion and disagreement as to the fine details, which I think we would naturally expect when we're talking about night visions from 2,600 years ago. Visions are by their very nature subject to a certain amount of interpretation and subjectivity. But in general, the main idea here is fairly close to the surface. The tricky thing is deciding how far beyond the main idea we want to go, which details are important, which are incidental. And that's where the disagreements tend to be. Now, as to the main idea, God seems to be saying that the witness of the covenant community is going to be restored. The light is going to shine again. And light, of course, is a symbol of witness. Old Testament and New. Jesus said to his disciples, of course, you are the light of the world. That's Matthew 5, 14. He told them to shine their light and not to hide it under a basket. So light, again, represents the witness of the covenant community. But interestingly, Jesus also said, in John 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is the light of the world. And then in some sort of related way, the church is the light of the world. And we see the same thing in the Old Testament. The lamp and the tabernacle represented the presence of God. 
and the witness to God through the life and worship of the covenant community. So the symbol here in Zechariah 4 is communicating that God will be present with the people and he will speak to the world through them. He'll be with them, he'll be in them, he'll speak through them. That's the essence of the symbol. Now, the fact that the lampstand is fueled by two olive trees adds another interesting dimension. In verse 4, Zechariah asks the angel to explain what or who these symbols refer to, but the angel doesn't answer the question directly. Not here, anyway. He'll do that later. But here, the angel says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So basically, the angel says the temple is going to be completed, which is the symbol of the Lord's presence and their witness to the world. The temple is going to be rebuilt, not by power, not by the strength of man, but rather purely by the Spirit of the Lord. This is going to be a work of grace and spiritual benevolence from start to finish. So Thomas McComiskey, for example, says here, the continual supply of oil to the reservoir symbolizes God's supply of what the people needed to complete the building of the temple, close quote. God is going to do it. He is going to be the builder and the supplier, which of course represents a, a massive contrast in terms of the building of the first temple in Solomon's day. Solomon had an army of human laborers and a mountain of laid up supplies. So 1 Kings 5, 13 to 18 says, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Closed quote. Well, it's not going to be like that this time around, God says. You get two prophets and a bunch of poor people. But believe me, you, Zechariah, we're going to get this done. We're going to get this done in your lifetime. The same guy who laid the foundation stone will place the top stone. And when that happens, everyone will cry out, grace, grace alone has done it. Praise the Lord. That's the essence of the vision. There are lots of obstacles, lots of problems, but the Spirit of God and the grace of God will overcome them all. All right, let's jump back into the story at verse 8. This is the same vision. We're just getting some further dialogue now from within that vision. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So here, Zechariah is being told that the work that was begun almost 20 years ago, in terms of the ceremonial foundation laying, will in fact be completed 
despite the significant delay. Remember, the returning exiles got off to a great start with the temple. They cleared the floor, they placed a ceremonial stone, they had a little, a little celebration, but then the whole project shut down from 538 to 520 BC because of local opposition and bureaucratic confusion within the wider Persian Empire. But now the Lord is saying, you just watch and see, my son, the same hands that laid the foundation stone so many years ago will in fact complete the project. There may be delays, there may be detours, but I always do what I set out to do. I may take a winding road, but I always arrive at my chosen destination. And woe unto those who don't have patience with the process. Woe unto those who despise the day of small beginnings. You have to believe and you have to be patient, but if you can do that, then you are going to see great things. I promise you that. That's what God is saying here. Now, as I said, there's some fine details that we don't have as much clarity on as we might like. We get an example of that in the latter half of verse 10. Look again at that. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. What's that about? Well, the seven likely refer to the seven lamps attached to the main bowl of this particular lampstand. Lots of people have tried to draw this, and there are different ideas about how to do that. But the main idea here is that there is a main bowl for the oil and then seven lamps associated with that. Here we're told that the seven lamps are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Well, that phrase occurs previously in the Bible in 2 Chronicles 16.9, which says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Close quote. So, here in Zechariah 4.10, it seems to be a way of saying that God is present with his people to help them. It's like God is saying, you know those eyes of mine that I told you about that run to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for people that need help? Well, those eyes are on you. I am seeing you in your present situation, and I'm committed to helping you. You have my full attention. I will bless and prosper your efforts to rebuild the temple. That's my understanding of the symbolism here, though there are some others who see it differently. There are commentators who will say basically what I just said, and there are some who will actually translate that a little bit differently. They'll translate verse 10, these are the seven springs which go out through the whole earth. So they're seeing a symbol of renewal here as opposed to a promise of help. And that could be, but I think the comparison with 2 Chronicles 16.9 is very compelling. But as I said, there can be some disagreements on these fine details. The basic message overall is straightforward. God is going to help. Praise the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So this is good news. However, the prophet still has a question that hasn't been answered yet. We hear about that in verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees? on the right and the left of the lampstand. And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth, closed quote. You remember that the prophet had asked about this back in verse 4, but the angel deflected. 
You don't know what these represent? That's surprising. But hear this word, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the angel deflects and then highlights the main point. Nevertheless, the prophet comes back to the question, and here, the main point having been reiterated, the angel very graciously gives an answer. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the main idea is that God is going to supply all that is needed for the project to be completed. But, and this is very interesting, he's going to do that through two particular human agents. That is fascinating. I'm going to do it, God says. So we expect supplies to drop through the clouds directly from heaven. God is going to do it. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So, so we're looking for miracles and, and signs and wonders. And what we get, actually, is inspired human leadership. All the commentaries agree on that. The only disagreement has to do with which two human leaders we're talking about. Some assume that it refers to Joshua and Zerubbabel. After all, they're the two main builders in the story. But actually, the stronger argument is for seeing these two anointed ones as Zechariah and Haggai, the two prophets. It is through them that God puts the tools and the resources into the hands of Joshua and Zerubbabel. That seems to be the perspective of Ezra the scribe, who says in Ezra 5, 1-2, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edu prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Close quote. So the support, the help that is promised here in this vision comes to Zerubbabel and Joshua through the ministry of Zechariah and Haggai. So they are the tubes. Zerubbabel and Joshua are blessed and helped by what comes to them from God through them. Does that make sense? I find this entire picture absolutely fascinating and somewhat counterintuitive. But we see this sort of thing again and again and again in the Bible. We want God to bless us directly, but he always seems to work through human intermediaries. So in Ephesians 4, 7, for example, the Apostle Paul says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's gift. Well, that's wonderful. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Perfect. It is lovely to receive gifts from Jesus. Paul talks about how Jesus came down and then went up triumphantly and took his seat. And like any victorious king, he, he begins to distribute gifts. But then listen to how Paul describes those gifts. He says in verses 11 to 12 of Ephesians 4, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Are you hearing that? That's remarkably parallel. The, the gifts that Jesus gave, the grace that he gives, the support that he gives for the building up of the house, the gifts are all people. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and, and teachers. We, we expect something direct and unmediated to drop right out of heaven into our souls, but instead we're receiving grace and support through people. And so it is here. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, which we go on to discover, will come in the form of inspired word ministry. The Spirit of the Lord will travel into human hearts 
through human ears, having first passed through human mouths. By means of this divine gift, priorities are going to be shifted. Resources are going to be released. Supplies will begin to stockpile. Obstacles will be removed. Work will resume. Progress will be made. And the project eventually completed. The hands of Zerubbabel will bring out the top stone and the people will all shout, grace, grace to it. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.